today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. So much to talk about. Uh, the premier, uh, tennis, uh, op-eds. Where do we even start? Let's bring in Alyssa Freeman, public relations consultant, and of course, uh, principal at Alyssa Freeman PR. She is with us now. Alyssa, thanks for the time as always. Much appreciated. You're very welcome, Scott. It's a jam-packed Monday. It is it ever. You know, we're waiting for a press conference from uh, Doug Ford, Premier Doug Ford, mm-hmm. on uh, the uh, GTA decision to, uh, well, I get, not the GTA decision, the court decision for him to uh, not decrease the size of council. Uh, in Toronto. Your thoughts on taking all of this on? Why, you know, like all, all it seems we're hearing about right now is, you know, disgruntled people with a sex ed that that's not complete. And now this. I, I mean, I don't think any one of these were top five issues for any Ontarian. No, they weren't. But I, you know, it's interesting because with the first hundred days, Doug Ford's administration put out a number of directives on what they wanted to achieve. And this was one of them. Um, one of them was not providing rebates for those uh, buying cars like Tesla's. And then the other one was reducing the city council size. Now, on the face of it, you, nobody is ever going to vote for more politicians and more bureaucracy. Yeah. So there was that. So there was some palatability, I would have to say, for that type of uh, recommendation. However, here's the thing. And yeah, people might be, you know, conservatives might be getting all ticked off that, you know, we're never still going to get anything done. People are all going to the courts to push back. And, you know, to that I say, hey, folks, this isn't a a one-way street. People have the right to voice an opposite opinion. Like it or not, that's called democracy. So when Tesla won their court decision, it kind of opened the floodgates for everybody else who thought, I don't really like what Doug Ford is doing. I don't think that we should shut down, you know, the um, grassroots opioid clinics. I'm going to go to court on that. And they also went to court on this decision, too. And I have to tell you, I was surprised that they won. Why? I don't know, because I think on the face of it, I thought, okay, I don't like the way it came down, but, you know, having less bureaucracy is probably a good thing. Right. But then when I heard the the court's decision that this is precedent setting, this is happening mid-campaign, that there's uh, no precedent for this um, to even fall back upon in terms of helping to make a decision. So I think that this is a real... PR blow to Doug Ford. And what it's showing is, is that you just can't be a one-way, you know, blowhorn and mm. say, I'm going to do this and I'm going to do buck a beer and I'm going to make everybody happy and uh, everyone's going to have a chicken in every pot. And, you know, to heck with what everybody else thinks. Well, you know what? There is uh, a large swath of people that you do need to care what everybody else thinks. And, and I think the most important lesson here is, is that, you know, yes, Doug Ford has a majority, but people didn't vote for, a lot of people didn't vote for him as much as they voted against Kathleen Wynne, yeah. and he was sort of a, a second choice. So based on that, I think you have to be a little bit more careful in some of these directives that you want out there. I think that they have to take the time and socialize these ideas in terms of getting them more publicly acceptable before just laying down the hammer. And if you take that time to do that, you tend to take out the rough edges from the idea. You understand what's going to go forth and what's not. And more than likely, you'll be successful. But just to ram things down people's throats, they're not having it. Uh, what happened to the kinder, gentler party? Well, which one are you talking about? (laughs) 
Are you talking about Sunny Ways? Are we still talking no, about No, like, you know, I remember when uh, Patrick Brown was at the helm. Uh, it was all about mirroring, mirroring what the Bill Davis conservatives were all about, uh, fiscally conservative, socially liberal. Uh, then we know where that went. All of a sudden, Doug Ford comes in, and the, the party veers farther to the right, and we're ending up with these scenarios. Again, this reminds me of Trump, and I hate to use that. I know uh, everybody's thinking I, that. I hate to use that uh, comparison. But it's just it, it appears that this wasn't well thought out and that, that nobody, nobody was directing him or saying, you know, this really isn't a priority right now. I think it depends who he's listening to, Scott. I think there's a lot of people that are trying to direct him, and I think that there were a lot of people who were trying to sway him away from this idea of reducing Toronto City Council. And I believe that that sort of let's call them a resistance group, thought that they had done that. However, there are other people in close to him uh, in his office that said, no, let's do it. So I think it depends who you're listening to. Now, had all these directives come out in a positive manner, then that cadre of people would have you know, been deemed successful. The fact is, is that they're not. So now Doug has to sort of sit back and say, okay, you told me that this was a good idea and this and this and this, and so far I'm zero for four. So one of two things is going to happen. You know, either they're going to sit on, you know, stick to the same way and this press conference will come out and complain, um, you know, about liberal elites and people who don't want change and people who are still, you know, um, all about bureaucracy and red tape. And then the other thing is that there might be some shuffling, and I don't know this, but there might be some reconsideration as to whom he is surrounding himself with. And, you know, a man is not an island in this, in this type of scenario when you're Premier of Ontario. You surround yourself with people who are hopefully smarter than you, know bureaucracy, and know how to socialize ideas so that you can get your directives across. This is clearly not happening, and he may take a step back and start listening to other people. It's all of a sudden going to become a bully narrative. I mean, that's the way it's leaning right now. Well, that's what it is now, Scott. So I'd be interested to see what happens in the next month or two. Is it still going to be this bully narrative? Because it's not working. Um, you know, when you ask what about the, happened to the kinder, gentler, gentler party, uh, I would say take a look at the kinder, gentler populace. Yeah who is not interested in always having a bully narrative. So there's supposed to be 10 cents uh, off a liter of gas. I have yet to see that. I was just, that's my next point. What about the gas? What about the high? I mean, those were the things that people were concerned about, not uh, sex ed or... And these are, and, and, and I agree with you. And I think that some of these things are diversionary tactics for stuff that isn't going to happen as fast as they wanted it to happen. Diversion from what, though? It's not well, like he's a Trump. From, like when you want to put, get, you know, take 10 cents off you know, a leader of gas. Oh, I see. That's not going to happen overnight. Right. There's, there's different stakeholders and parties right. and, and bureaucracy that you have to go through in order to make that happen. And those are sl- and that's slow. Like, I don't care how lean government is, it's slow. Yeah. So you can't show a win if things are going slowly. So in order to show that this government uh, means business and that they are doing something and they're accomplishing something, you come up with, you know, other mandates, such as sex ed, and, you know, such as reducing Toronto Council, which, by the way, a lot of people looked at as very much a, um, a, a move by an angry Doug Ford who yeah. felt that he was and he and his brother were late brother were often mistreated and maligned by. Yeah, Toronto it's a vendetta. Yeah, this is all supposed to be a vendetta against Toronto City Council. 
exactly. So I think that these guys have got to, you know, go back into the war room and say, okay, our track record is not great. So what do we need to do to do that? And what people do I need to have around me in order to have, you know, a successful, you know, run while I'm in, I'm the leader. How is the public viewing this? Because as you said, uh, you know, you're probably not going to get too much argument from people uh, when you're talking about reducing the size of government and less politicians, but it's the way it was done, no? It was, and I think that a lot of people are start, going to start to realize is that this is a lot of bluster that's short on detail. And you can come out and say something without, you know, and every time they were questioned on one of these things, it was like, okay, well, you know, we're, we're low on details now, but they'll be coming out. Well, there were, there were no details. So, it, you know, what did they say? The devil's into the details. So, you know, not doing your homework and not providing, you know, a full brief that uh, really shows you the pros and cons of these things, then um, this, is, this is what's happening. So I think the public is thinking that this is a lot of, you know, hot air that doesn't have a lot of substance. What do you think he's going to say in his press conference? How does he place this as a win? He's going to say that this is um, wrong, that what he wanted to do was right. You know, uh, once again, I was just trying to improve government, and it's just going to keep it the way it is, that, you know, these are sort of liberal or left-leaning elitists that are, that are hijacking and tying the hands of government so that you, the people of Toronto, aren't going to be able to accomplish what you think needs to be accomplished in this city. And I'm mad. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> no, not me, Matt. It but, just seems but, but listen, when I heard that breaking news, I was I sat in my car and my mouth was open. Um, do you do you think he can ram this through in some way? I mean, is he is is you know? There's talk about a notwithstanding clause and all this other. I mean, how many options does he have here? You know what? I think that the fact of the matter is, is that how important is this for him to do that? And how much time is this going to take? Bingo. You know, I mean, is this something that, I mean, and I think that if he continues to say we're going to ram this through, I think that me as, you know, somebody who's uh, a voting um, constituent is going to say, well, isn't there other things that we need to be worried about? Like, this is a fait accompli. Go after it later. And that's my, that might be what his, his, his fallback on, will, on when you ask, like, what is, what is he going to do? Why do this now? Like, again, did he just think this was going to go through? Uh, and again, whether you, you, know, you, you can sit and debate whether municipal election campaigns are too long, la, la, la. But as Mayor Tory said of Toronto, uh, you're changing the game, half, they're changing the rules of the game halfway through. I mean, I don't think that's going to rub anybody the right way. No, it's not. And I think that Doug Ford really has to dial back. And, you know, if, if help is really on the way, then sort of help us on what you said you thought you were going to do. And when he was questioned as to, well, why are, you know, why are you doing this? And uh, this wasn't part of your election platform. And let, let's remember, there really was no platform. <laughs> So this wasn't part of your election platform. And he said, oh, yes, I always said that I thought the government was too, um, uh, was, was too bloated. And so naturally, you have to assume that I thought I'd do something about that. So, you know, what? The, the answers were really quite um, shaky to begin with. So it'll be interesting to see what he says and what his go-forward action will be. Your uh, thoughts, let's uh, switch to sport and Serena Williams, and all we're seeing is her yelling at the uh, umpire and such. What are your thoughts on, um, uh, on what happened, what went down, and, and her thoughts, and, and how this transpires with women's tennis? 
Oh, boy. I had a big conversation about this last night at dinner. So, you know, here's the thing. When we look at her, what people are saying, her her reaction to being, I guess, wrongly accused, the first thing I want to say is that in, in terms of the governing body, which I believe is the, uh, I guess, the WTA or the USTA, you know, their processes are very loosey-goosey in that, how they are adhered to, adhered to. So we know there's all these rules. We know that people can't coach from the stands, and we know a number of different things. And the coach did admit he was trying to contact her. He was trying to communicate with her. Well, they all do. And, you know, if you looked at Naomi Osaka's coach, you know, who used to be Serena's hitting partner, by the way, um, she was also doing the same thing. So they all do it. And then there's the, you know, arguing with the umpire. Now, I recall earlier in the tournament where there was one player, I can't think of his name right now, who was obviously suffering the heat and playing and was not playing up to his potential. And the umpire, the male umpire, got out of his chair, talked to the guy, gave the guy a pep talk, and then lo and behold, he finds the mental strength to overcome his inability to play prior and wins wins the match. So, you know, here we have someone who feels that they have been, you know, wrongly accused. She double faults. Serena is angry, and she broke a rack at the umpire. So she had did have two um, offenses against her. Now, I've been watching tennis for many decades. I've seen Ilya Nastasi. I've seen John McEnroe. I've seen um, Jimmy Connors all freak out at umpires. And I mean freak out with obscenity-laced tirades. And only once, I think, in McEnroe's career, for all the times that he did it, did he have a game taken away from him. And here she stands up, and she says, you took a game for, away from me, you're a thief. Yeah. And, you know, the guy's going, well, I don't like that. And boom, takes a game away from her. And then you heard her complaining to the officials and saying, if this was a man, this is a man doing this, this would never happen, and you know it. And, 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 and they were absolutely, they absolutely just buckled. I mean, they, 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 they held fast that there were three offenses and they were taking a game away from her. So there's a lot of people saying that Serena's a sore loser, that, you know, she had three offenses. What did she expect? But I think it's the lack of adherence to, you, to the governing body's rules on how one is supposed to comport themselves in tennis. And sometimes it's okay for somebody, and sometimes it's not okay for somebody. Well, she says, no, it's okay for the guys. It's not okay for the girls. Well, I agree with her. Yeah. So is she I mean, I'm trying to be objective that, oh, you know, she threw a racket, she did this, she did that. And I'm like, you know what? How many times have you seen that? So double standard rather than sore it's loser. It's a total double standard. How many times have I seen a male tennis player whip his racket or throw his racket? I've never seen him get a, you know, a point taken away from it or you know, been warned as a result of it. You know, honestly, honestly, what is that um, you know, behavior unbecoming? So I think that you know, this is something, much like a lot of these sports that have men and women competing in them, like gymnastics, like in the, you know these are judge sports. You know it's tough, but if you're going to have rules, make sure that you stick to them, and you don't allow some for some for one player and and not for the other. Hmm. All right, can't let you go without uh, heading down south for uh, a visit with uh, President Trump. Uh, Mike Pence doing the circuit on uh, on the talk shows uh, says that there's nobody in his staff that would do this because he knows them all personally. What are your thoughts on how all this has transpired? Well, you know, here's the thing. When somebody writes an editorial blindly like this, you, you have to know it's going to be run through every algorithm to try and figure out who this is. 
And, you know, to have such red herrings like short sentences and the use of the word lodestar that would immediately point to Mike Pence. I mean, really? Really? Do you think that Mike Pence would really put out an editorial like that? And and like he writes his own speeches. You know, I don't know. I think that we'll never know who it is. I was saying earlier to Liz, the producer, that I thought that my first inclination was that it was um, Sarah Huckabee Sanders because she takes the brunt of everything. Yeah. And maybe she just, you know, and, and she has to say, I mean, she can't go out there and say what she really wants, she really thinks about all these things. Yet she has to um, really take the brunt and she's the front face uh, p- public face, really, in front of the press of Donald Trump. So I always, I thought, you know what, it's got to be her. She must be so angry and having to always front <laughs> all this stuff that she probably did it. But I don't think, well, I mean, some people thought it was McCain, too. It was sort of like a last day. Yeah, that would be interesting, wouldn't it? You know, and honest, honest to goodness, I hope we never find out. But uh, I just think it's interesting that there's a resistance knowing that, I mean, I heard on the news the other day that, you know, there's pieces, like Bob Woodward, for example, you know, his staff put, has pieces of paper on his desk, and then he looks at it, and then they take it away because he knows he'll never remember. So op-eds, Woodward's book, is this any different than Fire and Fury by the weekend? Will we even care about any of this? Like I say, and I've said to you before, Scott, I think this is a death by a thousand cuts, and I think that it's just more and more and more. And I would have to say that Bob Woodward, to me, has, you know, more gravitas than some of these other writers, like Omarosa that's come out with, you know, what's going on in the White House. This is the guy who broke Watergate. He understands sources. He understands that he has a, a reputation to maintain and uphold. I don't know how many times I've seen all the president's men and still enjoy that movie, even though I know how it's going to end. Yeah. So, and it's interesting because he hasn't been doing a lot of interviews. The first one that he gave was sort of an exclusive to a CBS morning show called Sunday Morning. And that is a very, um, and that is a very, very sort of closed type of set. So he's being very choiceful in terms of uh, who he's going to talk to and how he's going to talk about them. So I would say that his tactic of PR is quite different from the other ones that are really just being out there everywhere, every day, you know, in hopes of selling books. Well, it's like we were saying last week, uh, it's less about what's in the book and the fact that he's credible and just confirming everything else that everybody already knew or heard of. Well, I I 100% agree. You know, Bob Ward, Woodward and Bernstein, I mean, it's historic. All right, Alyssa Freeman has been with us, public relations consultant, Alyssa Freeman PR. As always, Alyssa, thank you for the time. Much appreciated. And thank you, Scott. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. Serena Williams, we all know her, uh, we've all heard of her, just a a massive star in the tennis world, been fined $17,000 for violating U.S. Open rules during her match. The first was for a warning for coaching, then it was smashing a racket and verbal abuse to talk about all of this and and run through exactly how this went off the rails. Abigail Johnson is with us, a British tennis broadcaster and journalist with the Tennis Journal and with us now. Abigail, thanks for the time, much appreciated. Well, thank you for having me. I appreciate that. As you look at this match and how it all unfolded, to those that didn't see it, what happened here? How did this go off the rails? Well, Naomi Osaka, 20-year-old Japanese player, was up against Serena Williams in the U.S. Open final, as many are aware. Osaka played a brilliant first set, really dominated, was stepping up to the baseline and absorbing Williams' power, which got Serena quite frustrated, but everything was fine for the first set. 
Then in the second set, things started going awry because near the beginning of that set, Serena got a warning for coaching. Now, this was because her coach, Patrick Murataglu, motioned to her from the sidelines, and it's... It's not apparent that Serena saw him. I don't think that she did, and he doesn't think that she did either. But the umpire saw this and therefore gave her a violation for coaching, which in and of itself wasn't a problem for her at first. But then further into the match, Serena broke her racket, and two violations results in a point penalty. So Serena had to start the next game of the match down love 15, well, 15 love, which she was very angry about. She had gone up to the umpire and expressed her displeasure after after the coaching violation and said that I, I never cheat and I would rather lose than cheat and just left us at that. But after after the racket abuse and having a point penalty, she got more upset. And then there was uh, the big consternation further into the match when uh, she was actually deducted a whole game because she was arguing with the umpire after having lost the break of serve that she'd got at the changeover, and she called him a well, a thief and a liar during that conversation, which was branded as the verbal abuse, and Serena therefore lost the game to go down 5-3 in what turned out to be the deciding set. So that's the brief of what went on, and there has been a lot of controversy and a lot of differing of opinions over what should and shouldn't have happened. Uh, is Serena a sore loser, or is there a double standard here with how uh, men and women are officiated? Here's the thing. I, I don't know if sore loser is the word. I remember a few years ago, Serena said that she hated losing more than anyone else in the world. They were her words, and I think that's apparent. I think that that's what makes tennis players great, it's what makes them, because they do hate to lose, and therefore they will do everything in their power not to lose, ethically, of course. And I think what, where I disagreed with Serena here was where she went into the men versus women side of things and feminism and all of that and bringing that into it. I don't think, obviously, there are double standards in some cases in this particular scenario and situation. I don't think it had anything to do with her being a woman. I don't think it had to do with men being treated differently than women. The problem here is a lack of consistency across the whole board with how umpires enforce the rules. Mm. Because technically, Carlos Ramos, the umpire, did what he should have done. He had the rule. He knows the rule book. He's an experienced umpire. He saw the third violation he gave her as verbal abuse, which is, I believe, the definition for verbal abuse in the rule book is if something is said uh, that can be deemed offensive or um well, suggest that the person that the player is talking about is being untruthful is is one of the descriptions, and definitely thief and liar come under that. Hmm. Uh, so it, it's difficult to say. I think that the problem for Carlos Ramos here is that he didn't give Serena any soft warnings. He went straight in with it, enforcing the rules, which I think, from his perspective anyway, he had a right to to do what he did. Uh, he saw coaching. Coaching isn't allowed, so therefore he gave the coaching violation, the racket abuse warning. That was plain for all to see. Serena smashed her racket. And then Serena called him a thief and a liar, which worse has been said. She was correct. Worse has been said. But that still is breaking the rules, and therefore he did that. I think that he should have given her a soft warning, but also in that chat before the third violation, Serena asked him, she continually asked him, give me an apology, apologize to me. And when he wouldn't, she said, don't talk to me then. So wow. Ramos says, fine. And he didn't, he didn't talk to her. But then Serena continued to talk to him. 
And that was when she called him a thief and a liar. He hadn't said anything to her since she told him not to talk to her. So then you ask yourself, how could he give her a soft warning if she, she told him not to not to talk to her because she could have got even more enraged and frustrated. But going back to the original question, as I've, I've digressed a bit, I think this is more to do with um, this one situation. It's not Serena being discriminated because, against because she's a woman. I think Serena is very well respected. And I think Ramos even mentioned about having seen her for many years and know that it's not in her character to cheat or to, to get coaching. It wasn't Serena that wanted the coaching. It was Marotta Glue who made that decision from the sidelines. Serena didn't ask for it. And I just think across the board, there needs to be more consistency. It's such a gray area. Some coaches enforce, some coaches don't. Some coaches give chances to the players. They give warnings. Some coaches, I say coaches, I mean umpires. Right. Some umpires yeah. just go straight in there and, and dish out the punishment. So, yeah, I, I just that's where I disagree with Serena, where she brought in the fact that it's discrimination against women, for example. I, I think it's more. You think it's more to do with you think it's more to do with lack of consistency. Oh, definitely, one hundred percent. I but think that's isn't that the issue with her. isn't that common with all sorts of officiating, Abigail? Whatever the sport is, I pro- probably is, you know, and I I feel for the umpires in a sense because. The, the rules are there, but if, if one person's enforcing and someone else isn't, it makes it so much harder for someone to do the job that they should be doing. And it's so easy for them to come under, well, to get stick for what they do because sometimes they're condemned if they do and they're condemned if they don't. Yeah. Uh, Ramos here, was he being too rigid? Given the situation in the match, given how close it was at that particular stage, I think he should have leant back a bit and let it go or given a soft warning, you know, say to her, look, Serena, if you carry on like this, there are, there are going to be consequences. She was so wrapped up in the match. I mean, at first, she didn't realize about the point penalty, and she didn't even realize about the game penalty until she was stood waiting to return, which shows how dialed in and focused right. she was on what was going on, because Ramos even said over, over the microphone, you know, the game penalty, she didn't even notice until the balls were sent to her end of the court. So... Yeah, I, I just I, I feel for both in this situation. I feel for Serena because she genuinely felt like she was being she well, she felt like that there had been cheating going on from the umpire. She felt like yeah. she'd been robbed during that match. It's not the first time it's happened to her at the US Open. And Carlos Ramos in the chair has a very big responsibility. Sometimes the spotlight is on him and he has to make some some tough calls. So I wouldn't say that either one of them was right or wrong in the situation. Will this change the way tennis handles or manages these situations? Given that the person in question is Serena Williams, she's so respected, so well-known. I mean, this whole story has blown up. It's a massive thing, and because it's so big, I don't think it's something that people can shy away from, governing bodies and that kind of thing. Some of the statements that have come out from the USTA, from the WTA, have been very vague and rather lame, I think, in the scheme of things, seeing how big this is. But this isn't going to get brushed under the carpet. This potentially affected the outcome of a match. Now, I think Naomi Osaka could quite probably, quite probably even, have won that match anyway. She was very composed. She was absorbing Serena's power. She was she rises to the occasion against the big name players on the biggest stages. And 90% sure that Osaka would still have won that match had mm. all this not have happened. But this. Serena is such a fighter, and if she had been that one game behind Osaka, there is all the opportunity she could have clawed her way back into it. She wouldn't have been torn apart emotionally. She would have been so much more focused and zoned in in those latter stages. And it's, it's a 
well, it's an enormous event. It's a, yeah. it's a massive issue that people are talking about two days after that happened, a day after Novak Djokovic won his 14th Grand Slam title. This is still the headline story. <laughs> Good point, yeah. And it, <laughs> yeah, it shows how big of a big of a deal it is. And I, I think that things have to be looked at if, if the sport is to, to continue to go to these matches and hope that this doesn't happen again. And I think it's going to make things... Uh, well, maybe change things up for the umpires as well, because we had earlier in the tournament the issue with one of the umpires coming down and, um, I say in quote marks, giving a pet talk to Nick Kyrgios and mm. almost trying to encourage him. And there's been a lot of spotlight on the officials this tournament. And because of that as well, combined with such a massive event as this, I think this is going to be looked into. And I'm not sure what they can do, but the rules are going to be looked into especially. And I've heard talk about coaching and whether it should be allowed in matches, whether it should just be straight up allowed because a lot of people are saying everyone coaches across yeah. the men's and the women's side there are coaches sat there who are giving their like giving their players help right. during the match and people are saying that this is this is a done thing would all players male and female agree that there needs to be more consistency in officiating oh 100%, is that a, is that an issue so. yes definitely it's something that has been discussed for a long time there are players that wish to not have umpires at all, to just have a Hawkeye system to, to decide how things are played out, which could be an issue because Hawkeye is not always reliable, very expensive for some of the tournaments um, on the tour. But, I mean, Victoria as a record... And certainly would take away... Serena it, Williams was, it, would, it would certainly sorry. take away all of this emotion, too, if we were to go to that, that direction. Well, I think so. I mean, there are going to be occasions we've seen before where Hawkeye actually isn't working and they've gone to the challenge and they've been waiting and waiting mm. and it's not actually coming into play. Some people don't want Hawkeye because it would get rid of moments like this, not especially to this height, but, um, you know, altercations between umpire and players, you know, arguing, discussing things. Some people like that. They think it makes tennis more entertaining. But if things are going to get this serious and have this much of an impact on matches, mm. then I think that sort of thing is going to get considered more and more. There's a, a tournament at the end of the year that originated last year, the Next Gen ATP Finals, which is um, a, a tournament for the upcoming young male players on the tour. And that is trialing a lot of things, which includes Hawkeye calls instead of lines judges. They still have the umpire. But these are things that with um, the age we're in now, a technological age, you know, these advances are being considered more and more and maybe that's something that will will be considered you know because of this having happened what about her respect for the official i mean once you express displeasure with an official i can't imagine it being an easy road from then on um mm. and especially asking an official for an apology uh, yeah. is is that cross isn't that crossing the line I think so. I think in the end, Serena definitely went too far. And to be honest, I've just rewatched the match and everything that happened. I, at first, I didn't watch the match live. I saw parts of it. And I think that the, the bits and pieces that were taken of Serena discussing with the umpire and arguing with the referee, they took the height of her moments of emotion right. and when she, was at, when she was at her most distressed and made it look more advanced than it was, I think. When I watch it back, actually, Serena's first 
discussion with the umpire when she when she got the call for coaching she went over to him and she said i just want to say i understand why it looks like coaching to you but i have uh, if he's sticking his thumbs up at me which he wasn't actually so i don't i think serena really didn't see what was going on because i think he was motioning for her to to move forwards into the court or something he was moving his hands backwards and forwards but her words to the umpire were along the lines of i understand why you think it might be coaching if he sticks his thumbs up at me but i can assure you it's not um, I, I never cheat. I would rather lose than cheat. And I just want to tell you that she was actually very dignified at that point of the match. And she went back and she carried on with the game. It was as the match went on and she got more distressed. And actually when she, I think when she felt the loss creeping closer, that the two things put together, the fact that she was losing to a zoning opponent and the fact that she really felt she was being treated badly, they combined for her to actually, she, she was out of line in what she said to him. I think that she didn't completely lose herself. She wasn't. She wasn't tears, but she didn't go off in a screaming, shouting rage, as some people seem to be describing it. Right. She raised her voice. She got emotional, but in, ter- in terms of her composure and her disposition, she didn't go crazy. But in terms of what she said, I think she definitely went too far, especially when she said to the umpire, "If you're not going to apologize, don't talk to me." So yeah. he agreed. He turned wow. away, and then she carried on. I, I think that was. Can that you was give? Her part. Can you give an order to an umpire not to talk to me? I mean, I'm thinking right there that's no, you know, maybe I can say to yeah. you, don't talk to me, but no, I'm going to talk to you. I mean, that already, yeah. to me, it, change, it changes the balance of power. Yeah, I mean, well, this is Serena Williams, and people, I think over the years, when I was younger, I loved the Williams sisters. Growing up, they were the reason I watched tennis, oh, yeah. and uh, as I was growing up, there was not the same support for them that Serena has now. I, I rarely met anyone who likes the Williams sisters. Nowadays, Serena is very much celebrity. It's kind of the in thing to kind of worship her. And that, I'm not saying that's rubbed off on Serena, but there is that aura that kind of that follows her around that people have created, that the media have created. That she's bigger and than the game. It, she's bigger than the, than exactly. the official. So when people are assessing this, it almost makes it feel like she has a right to talk to the umpire as if he is beneath her. She's not saying that herself. I think that other people are trying to say that for her. I think in some of the statements that have come out, people are treading very carefully because they don't want to look like they're disrespecting Serena, obviously, because of everything she's achieved. But it's a very good point that she shouldn't have been talking to the umpire in that way anyway, because the umpire is there to oversee the match, to make sure things run smoothly, and they themselves have a degree of authority. Um, For her to say that he owed her an apology isn't, the, the most problematic thing that she said, he penalized her, I think, for calling him a thief and a liar. He, when she asked him for an apology, he just said that he wouldn't give one because he was an umpire. He had to make a call, and he did that. So, yeah, but she yeah, did, it's not very often she shouldn't have been talking in it, that way. It's not very often you're going to get a pro athlete go to an official and say apologize for that call. I mean, that just you know, uh, that sort of yeah. over and above. That I think be- the more Serena spoke, the more she got carried away. Yeah. If she had halted after that first going up to him saying, I, I don't cheat to win, I would rather lose, and gone back, that would have been fine. Hmm. She, would have, she would not have been penalized, she would not have had another problem, but she has herself to blame for the racket abuse, which in the emotion of the moment, it's so hard to restrain, it, even with someone of Serena's experience, to be in that situation where she got the break in the second set to then, in a way, almost hand it back 
the frustration there is it, it's hypocritical for me to sit here and say, oh, she shouldn't have done that. When in, if right. I was in that situation, boy, difficult times, you know. But I mean, she the more she let herself speak, the more she got carried away, and she almost dug a hole for herself in the end there. And then to then to try and change it a bit and to say, oh, uh, this is discrimination against women and that kind of thing. She needed to she needed to let go. She needed to, mm. to stop after she'd said the, her first bit to the umpire. I think. You you had said that Naomi Naomi Osaka deserved the win that that you she you felt she would have won won either way. That being said, does yeah. this take away from her win? We're talking about Serena, not her. Absolutely, I think it really does, and I think it's a big shame. In fact, uh, Osaka took a whole day to put a post on her Instagram account about having won. For when she reached the quarterfinals and the semifinals and the finals, she did a post to say thank you and just to, to show how happy she was feeling. She wins her first Grand Slam at the age of twenty, and we hear nothing from her for twenty-four hours. She was crying at the trophy ceremony. Yeah, the she looked were incredibly hostile. She looked very embarrassed. Um, she didn't look. She looked like she didn't want to be yeah. there. The thing with Osaka, and I had to watch it back to make sure, because she is, she's quite a reserved person. She doesn't often, it's not, it's not in her resting face to smile, let's put it that way. She's, a, she's quite a reserved girl. She's very quiet, quite shy, a little bit awkward. Uh, but definitely those tears were unhappy tears at the trophy ceremony, which is why Serena moved up to her and put her arm around her and tried to, to calm the crowd down. Because for Osaka, who'd gone out there with such a strong mentality, played a nerveless, match even when she was down in that second set she just stepped up to the baseline and she played some great strategic tennis to outwit Serena almost and use her power and land her marks on the court and it's such a shame for her that this has overshadowed things because she really earned that victory even even if Serena hadn't got those violations you know she was in a sticky situation in that match and Osaka despite the continued interruptions despite the clear controversy of what was going on she stayed focused she acted as if nothing was happening and for someone so young with in comparison to Serena so little experience to take a situation like that and come through it the way she did is deeply impressive and she's not getting the recognition she deserves for that she doesn't even seem to feel like she can talk about it openly on the as going back to what I was saying before when she did finally post on Instagram it was just to say I want to take the opportunity to say I was very grateful to have the opportunity to play on that stage. She didn't mention anything about having won her first Grand Slam and being so happy about that. She almost acted as if she wasn't allowed to speak about what had gone on, which I, I just find very, very sad. Uh, you talked about, and we've only got a few, uh, about a minute left here, you talked about how competitive, obviously, every prof- professional athlete is. Serena, no different. Uh, she's mm-hmm. had a long career. Uh, she must be on the downswing soon. How is she going to cope with that? This could send things two ways for Serena. This could either put more pressure on her. I mean, we've seen in later stages of Grand Slam, she's been feeling the pressure more. She's had two straight sets losses in Grand Slam finals this year. So that could make her feel it a bit more when she goes into more majors upcoming. Or she could use it to fuel her, to fuel her desire and to fuel her passion and to make her strive to get even better, which is what we've seen from Serena so many times before. People have said she was done early in her career back in 2011 when she, she was on her deathbed yet again. When she gave birth to her daughter, people questioned whether she'd come back. Hmm. And she's coming back and she's coming back. And I think why she was so emotional in this final when this was happening to her was because, as she said herself, I worked so hard to get here. Hmm. And if she can just focus on how hard she's worked and how great she is, 
I think she can rebound from this and I think she can still achieve much more. Abigail Johnson has been with us, British tennis broadcaster and journalist at the Tennis Journal. Abigail, thank you so much for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Thank you. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. We just finished airing uh, the press conference uh, with the Premier of Ontario explaining what he is going to do uh, now that his uh, plan to reduce the size of Toronto City Council uh, has uh, hit a roadblock in the courts. He says now that his constitutional experts say that this is all a no-brainer and he is going to appeal the decision to talk more about all of this is Peter Griff, political science professor at McMaster University, and is with us now. Peter, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Good afternoon. So, Peter, let's start with the court decision. Are you surprised at, at how the court ruled here, even though uh, Doug Ford says his constitutional experts say this was a no-brainer? Yeah, well, I'm not a constitutional expert. I thought it was a no-brainer, too. So I was a bit surprised by the uh, the decision. Although, I mean, it is, uh, you know, I think charting some un- uncharted territory, it's not frequently that we have a sitting provincial government cancelling municipal elections while they're already underway. And so the aspects that the court developed, for instance, by saying it could be that this law was okay, but uh, on a different time scale, not when there's already an election in place, for instance, is one that... Right. people maybe uh, wouldn't have foreseen. The other one arguing that uh, 25 councillors is not enough for effective representation strikes me as a bit more of a novel uh, interpretation, and it would be interesting to see where that goes on appeal, whether other courts decide or not. I mean, it, it comes back a bit, too, to some of the decisions of the Ontario Municipal Board. So, again, it would be interesting to see uh, what they'd have to say about that. Uh, so you think this is less about the issue of reducing the size of council and more about how it was done? Uh, yeah, I mean, I think the, the, the court really says there's two reasons why the, the bill is unconstitutional. Uh, the second is this idea about effective representation, and it, it puts a bit of time looking at that. But a lot of it has to do with what it sees as a violation of our freedom to speak, and particularly that of candidates involved in an electoral contest that's been called, and the decision then to cancel that and replace it with something else after it started is, is uh, the, the meat of, of the decision. And then appealing this now, I mean, can all of this be cleaned up before the next municipal election? Because again, it's getting closer and closer with every passing day. No, I mean, uh, I mean, I think the decision in the first right to cancel an election underway and, and, and move to a different ward structure was already challenging for the city of Toronto. I mean, the, the timing is certainly a bit peculiar uh, in that it, it is odd to cancel an election that's underway and then to assume that it can be turned on a dime one way or the other. I mean, if these things were really important, there would have been nothing preventing the government from waiting for the election to happen and then work through a proper consultative process to say, OK, what, what would be good governance in Toronto and how do we get there? This seemed much more of a back-of-the-envelope solution imposed at pretty much the worst possible time. Uh, that being said, how does he move forward with this? Uh, obviously, he's going to appeal this. The Premier is going to appeal this decision. Um, but I'm guessing with timing, there's no way this can be done before a municipal election. Does he now use this as a platform for the next one? Uh, well, he could, although his short-term uh, solution from the press conference today seemed to be more that he would be willing to use the Section 33 of the Constitution, the notwithstanding clause, uh, to say that, you know, notwithstanding this decision of the court, the law stands in the form that he wrote it. So, uh, again, we'll see whether he backs off from that, but at the moment it would be to bring that forward, so to uh, bring forward a motion of the legislature to that effect, presumably next week, uh, to uh, go back to uh, his 25 uh, 
seat solution that he, he placed in Bill 5. So that seems to be the short-term solution as, as we await a court decision. Um, so uh, you were surprised that they did rule against him, so he is in his right to do this? Uh, well, yeah, I mean, he's in his right in a situation to bring forward the legislation. Uh, I mean, at this point, he will have to appeal the decision because there is something there where it questions, can you really represent, properly, effectively represent someone at the municipal level with only 25 councillors for the two point so many million people in, in uh, Toronto. I mean, that has to be dealt with. The other, the other uh, aspect was really the timing, and, and uh, that's sort of less of an issue. Similarly, the decision to move forward with use of the notwithstanding clause, it's not a, a legal issue. It's really uh, a political one. It's a clause that hasn't been used beyond a couple of times in the early 80s, a decision to use it for what doesn't seem to be that central a piece of his electoral platform and not something over which he has a particularly strong electoral mandate is uh, is a bit unusual and uh, might raise some questions uh, with the, even members of his own party about the extent to which he's willing to uh, defer to what the courts say the Constitution is as opposed to how he understands it himself. So, uh, too much too much legislation here for the issue? I mean, I can see governments doing this, uh, you know, at other levels for things like pipelines and such, but is this the issue to be bringing in the, ne- the notwithstanding clause? Yeah, well, I would, I would say it would be a curious one to make the decision to use it on, on that front. Too big a hammer for the nail? Uh, yeah, I mean... I mean, I guess there's a couple of things. On the one hand, the court leaves the door fairly wide open to move towards something close to what he did, but he would just have to wait for this election to go under its current process, and the next one would be as he'd want it. Um, so, you know, what the, the real rush is to make this change for this electoral cycle rather than the, the next one is, is a, a big question. The, the extent that, uh, you know, it's not clear that people see this as a really pressing democratic issue to be resolved, you know, immediately, I think likewise. Uh, is to burn a lot of political capital, right? The idea that this is something that hasn't been touched, that when governments do it, it's easy for the opposition to say that he's running roughshod over your rights. Mm. Uh, it pays a bigger long-term price than simply winning this one, uh, this one beef, essentially, with Toronto City Council, which for, I mean, I don't know how you see it, Scott, but I think for people sitting outside of Toronto... Uh, it really looks like a vendetta with Toronto City Council as opposed to something yeah. that's really going to improve our lives as Ontarians. Yeah, it, it appears like he's sh- shooting off one of his toes here. It's just something, it's not one of the big five issues that I think are bothering or troubling most Ontarians right now. Yeah, well, I mean, it's kind of another sign that he seems to be the first person elected uh, Premier of Ontario who did it because he wanted to be Mayor of Toronto. It's certainly, when you listen to his press conference, he sounded like a municipal, more a municipal leader than a, than a Premier. What about public reaction to this? Because you're not going to see too many, uh, 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 I'm thinking, too many Ontarians or Canadians that say, yeah, we want more politicians. I mean, this, and as you said, um, you know, he, this is something that he could have got political support with, but now he's, you know, he's making a bigger issue out of this than, than it really is to Ontarians. So moving forward, uh, how's the public going to feel about this? Well, I mean, I think he does lose some of his leverage on the point, because if it is framed as he wants it, as more or fewer politicians, chances are he wins that argument. Uh, but now it's like, does uh, Doug Ford re- respect uh, the courts and the constitutional judgment uh, or not? You know, does he, is he willing to follow something through the court process and hear what they say, or is it a matter of of uh, you know running over an un- inter- interpretation of our constitutional rights. Uh, if it becomes a, that kind of question, 
I think it's much harder for him to win the public argument. What about the relationship between Ontario and Toronto now? Yeah, well, I mean, I think it's going to be an interesting question about this whole uh, Ford uh, premiership, because there's a number of situations, similarly the musings about what to do with Ontario Place, where it seems like uh, the premier's real interest is about Toronto. And yet his electoral base in important ways is in the suburbs of Toronto, but also, you know, in the rural regions of the province, places where they probably want to hear less about Toronto. And so how he, you know, deals with his own personal interests and, and the somewhat opposed interests of members of his caucus and a lot of his supporters is going to be a challenge uh, going forward. To date, he's been able to do it because his vision of Toronto probably reflects that of people in a lot of the suburbs of Toronto. But in the longer run, if they say, well, his interest is just about that and not about the roads and streets and safety and our health care and the schools and our community outside of Toronto, it's going to be tough for him. Uh what about the rest of the party on this? I mean, where were they? Were they uh, behind him? I mean, he's got this all-star cast behind him that we rarely hear from. What about them? What about, where are they on this? Well, I think they, su- they support the premier because he's their premier. They want to have positions in his government. Uh, in many cases, this is seen as a stick in the eye to some of their opponents in uh, Toronto city politics. So, Uh, particularly for the ones newly elected from the sort of suburban municipalities just outside of Toronto. They probably are quite comfortable defending it, but at the same time probably realize that, uh, you know, they didn't get elected to Queen's Park uh, to micromanage Toronto. So I think the longer-term thing will be some questioning about are we burning a lot of political capital uh, to not really be dealing with the things that matter in our our community, whether it's the state of the hospital, the repair of schools, or questions such as that. Um, and again, is, is it really that big an issue with Ontarians and it's more political hay for the opposition, making him look like a bully? Yeah, well, I mean, I, I think it, it is an interesting way to spend your political capital. I mean, even to say you're going from, you know, 47 to 25 politicians, if you're not living in Toronto, you know, whether it's 27 or 25 or 42, uh, it probably doesn't. You know, you're not seeing that as, you know, the bottom line of your tax bill. You're not seeing that, the kind of quality of governance. Whether Toronto City Hall is functional or not is probably important for you because you want Toronto to be economically successful as mm. an engine of the province. But, uh, you know, it, it doesn't really look like a thought-out plan. It looks more like a personal vendetta. And so in that case, you're kind of asking, yeah, well, what's what's he really doing? Is he actually making Toronto less healthy? Yeah, there's a few fewer salaries to pay, but are they actually going to be able to make the decisions to turn around you know, an economy that has to face, you know, the Donald Trump tariffs, that has to face low productivity growth. What is it really setting in place uh, an economy that can pull the province? Does he need this to save money? He was counting on saving so much with this. Well, I mean, he saved zero money, really. I yeah. mean, Toronto taxpayers presumably had a few fewer council salaries to pay, although chances are some of that work would be distributed elsewhere and other people would be hired to pick up the phone and, like, look after people's uncollected trash and so on. So... Yeah, I mean, there wasn't a lot of money to be saved in the first place. It wasn't Ontario money that was going to be saved. The argument was that uh, Toronto City was uh, Council was dysfunctional, uh, couldn't make the tough decisions, which uh, may be partially true. It's not clear that having 25 is much better. We're at 15 in Hamilton. We, we speak of dysfunction on that City Council, too. Um, so yeah, the, the sort of the clarity of goals beyond we just want fewer politicians weren't clear. It's a good soundbite and maybe wins you something in the short term, but in the longer run, it raises these other questions, like can Toronto have you know governance that we need for 
uh, strong economic growth in this province? You know, are our rights being protected? Uh, is the government really looking after the interests of the province or simply settling scores in Toronto? Peter Grave has been with us, political science professor, McMaster University, talking about the speech that uh, Doug Ford just gave at a press conference in regard to appealing the decision to shrink Toronto City Council. Peter, thanks for the time and insight. Much appreciated. You're welcome. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on 900 CHML.